Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, November 28th, 2021, and this is show number 864. Well, I'm going to do my, uh, what is starting to sound like a broken record here. Things are going to start to get real busy in the month of December for me, uh, like our, it is for most of you. But if you have some tech lying around, something you're excited about, a, a web service you think is cool, or you want to go on a rant about something uh, technical, I could use some reviews. Um, not sure exactly when I'll use them, but I've just looked at my schedule and discovered things are going to get pretty dicey in December. So uh, if we could uh, have some reviews here, that would be fantastic. You can send them to me at allison at podfeet.com. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is another installment of Programming by Stealth with Bart Bouchatz. And as we embark on our journey to create a JavaScript module for the strong, memorable password generating service XKPassWD that Bart created in Perl long, long ago, Bart explains the importance of how we will need to be able to create good documentation. That sounds really annoying and tedious. And it is. So Bart explains why a good documentation generator will be our friend. He outlines two distinctly different users of our documentation, those of us who will be helping to create the code itself as part of the community project, but also for the people who will be users of our JavaScript module. Those users might be interested in how to take this module and, say, embed it into a web page to generate passwords for people, or to create maybe an Alfred scheme and more different opportunities for it. These two different users will have different requirements, and yet our documentation generator can, pill, can fill both of those needs without an unnecessary extra work. This is not the sexiest topic, but Bart does convince me that the tools will help us to have the rigor to do it and not let our human instincts take over and allow our documentation to get out of date. You can, of course, find Bart's fabulous show notes at pbs.bartificer.net, but I want to play you a little clip from the very, very end of our recording to let you know that in spite of how annoying this topic sounds, how much fun we had doing it. We'll talk to you again in, in a couple of weeks. Indeed, and until then, happy computing. Yeah, I know we went long, but gosh darn it, I was having fun. Last week, I told you how disappointed Steve and I have been with the full self-driving beta we've been testing from Tesla. I wanted to give you a little different perspective on the situation this week. I went to visit some friends, and on the way back, I decided to let the car drive me home. The drive was not super complicated, but it did have a right turn on a red light and a few other interesting maneuvers. I would still describe the ride as being with a student driver, but it wasn't terrifying at all. It didn't seem like a drunk student driver on this particular ride. It was a bit too tentative, so the time it took to make a right turn on a red light was long enough to impel the Verizon Fios driver behind me to give a gentle honk. The drive included a T intersection with a stop, and two lanes going in my direction. The intersection is right in front of a little shopping plaza and has lots of foot traffic. My self-driving Tesla came up to the intersection, waited for the car, first car on my left to make its turn. It then stayed still, because a pedestrian started to walk into the crosswalk in front of me, and it did not go. But then, a human driver came up on my right and blew through the stop sign, with the pedestrian stepping into the, into the uh, crosswalk. Luckily, the pedestrian was paying attention, and so did not get splattered across the road, and they waited while the car went through the intersection without stopping. This is why, in spite of the problems I've been experiencing with the Tesla program, I still believe that humans should not be driving at all, and I'm glad to be part of beta testing full self-driving. It will get better, 
and it will learn, unlike humans who evidently never will. You've probably heard me talk about my amazing web app, Timeshifter Clock, that allows you to figure out what time it will be in multiple cities at once in order to schedule times to talk to people around the globe. Well, recently, I had a chance to see how it dealt with the U.S. leaving daylight saving time. Or is it entering? I never know. Anyway, most of the year, Los Angeles and Dublin are eight hours apart, but because the U.S. is idiotic, we get on and off daylight saving time at different times than the rest of the globe. That means Bart and I are eight hours apart most of the year, then briefly for a week or two, we're seven hours apart, then we go back to eight hours apart, and then back to seven hours apart for a couple of weeks. It's basically a hot mess. The night before the U.S. got off daylight saving time was November 6th, Dublin and L.A. were seven hours apart according to my clock, which was correct. To test that it was working properly, I used the slider to shift time forward to November 7th when it should have showed us eight hours apart. But sadly, it did not. I was very disappointed that there was a bug I would have to fix. I spent some quality time with my code and I figured out my mistake. I take the current time in the first city, which defaults to LA because (laughs) it's my app, and I convert that to universal time, also known as UTC. It's a bit arrogant that we think we're in charge of declaring what time it is for the universe, but I digress. After I change it to UTC, I'd round it down to the nearest hour, and then I convert any cities chosen to their offset from UTC, and then I add the time chosen with the slider to move each city forward in time. My mistake is that I should add the slider value to the UTC time before I convert it to the different cities' times. So I found the bug, and that was good. Once I realized my error, it was time to code up the fix. I use VS Code as my code editor, and I've been experimenting with a plugin called GitHub Copilot that makes suggestions for what it thinks you might want to write. It's pretty helpful to me because I often know what I want to do, but I'm unsure of the syntax. If I get a running start at a function, GitHub Copilot often will write the rest of it for me. In this case, GitHub Copilot came through like a champ. It wrote all by itself the line of code that I actually needed to code. I'd I'd set up the previous line and it just filled the rest of it in. It was fantastic. Now I put the code in the show notes and that may look and sound like gibberish to you, but it was exactly what I needed. It says to take my rounded down time in UTC and add the value from the time shifter to create a new reference point in UTC. While I was fairly certain that I had found the root cause of the problem because logically I could see that I had made a mistake, I wasn't certain that I had implemented the fix correctly. I needed to test my fix, but there was a big problem. Time shifter clock only lets you shift forward seven days, so how can I test this solution without waiting waiting until the next daylight saving time change? I told Bart that I was pretty sure I'd fix the bug, but that I was sad I couldn't test it. He suggested that I change the date and time on my Mac to right before the previous or next daylight saving time change, and then test it. There's two interesting things about that idea. First of all, I had no idea that time shifter clock was using the time of the user's computer to do its calculations. I thought my time, my code was, I don't know, reaching out to some sort of time lord to know what time it was. I thought the moment.js library was, I was using was in charge of the actual time. Now, I'm really glad I had this bug because learning you have a fundamental misunderstanding in how your own code functions is a very good thing. I mean, of course, it'd be better if you didn't have a fundamental misunderstanding, but if you do have one, you really want to learn about it. Now to Bart's idea of changing the date and time on my Mac. I was trepidatious about this suggestion because bugs in a system can easily be introduced by an incorrect system clock. 
In my case, I know for sure that spooky action at a distance would occur because I have a lot of hazel rules that are time-based. For example, when my recorded audio files are over two weeks old, Hazel whisks them over to my Synology NAS for cold storage and it deletes them from my internal drive. Even if I turned off Hazel for the duration of my testing, I was still worried about what else I might have going on that was time-based that I just didn't remember. I induce enough weirdness on my computers all by myself. I do not need to invite spooky action at a distance into my house. When I explained my trepidation, Bart made an even better suggestion. Why not do it in a virtual machine? I thought that sounded like great fun. I could install any flavor of Linux, change the system date within that OS, and then do my experiments all without breaking anything on my Mac. Now, virtual machine software such as Parallels and VMware Fusion are highly capable and awesome pieces of software for people who need to consistently run another operating system or more. They're not inexpensive, so for a tinkerer like me with needs a couple times a year, they're not the right answer. Now, 100 years ago or so, Sun Microsystems came out with an open-source virtual machine app called VirtualBox. And when Oracle bought out Sun, and the stock I owned in Sun went to zero, they kept VirtualBox going. I've used it in the past, so I downloaded it on my M1 Mac. While it was downloading, I also downloaded the ARM version of the Linux distribution CentOS Stream. You see, I've got an ARM-based Mac, I needed the ARM version of Linux. I expected that Ubuntu would work and would be easier, but what fun would that be? I wanted to try CentOS uh, Stream, and that would make it more challenging. Now, when you download a disk image for an operating system like Linux, it's called an ISO, which makes it look like an old-fashioned CD to the installer software. Unfortunately, it looks like Oracle is no longer a good steward for VirtualBox because macOS Monterey refused to install it. It said, the installer encountered an error that caused the installation to fail. Contact the software manufacturer for assistance. All right, so VirtualBox is out. My next idea, since I didn't want to pay for the commercial virtual machine apps that would have made this trivially easy, was to see if I could install Linux into a Docker container on my Synology NAS. I'm always looking for excuses to justify the cost of the Synology, so this was a perfect opportunity. Now, I'm not an expert on Docker containers, but from what I understand, they're essentially wholly encapsulated environments where if you break anything, you just throw away the Docker container and start over. This is one of the reasons I love playing with software. If you break it, you can just start over. On the Synology, I already have Docker installed, so I just needed to find a Docker container for Linux. I easily found one for Ubuntu, and I installed it. I had no problems at this point, but I couldn't figure out how to make the Ubuntu container go. There, I couldn't find a launch, a start. There wasn't a go button. I, I, no way to point to a downloaded ISO image of, ISO, of Ubuntu or anything like that that I could find. I'm sure there is a way to turn it on from within Docker or there wouldn't have been a container. So somebody listening probably knows, and I'd love it if you'd let me know how to make it go from within that uh, Docker container. All right, well, when I went to the Googles to try to figure out how to make my virtual machine inside a Docker container go, I discovered something delightful. Synology provides a tool called Virtual Machine Manager specifically for installing and running virtual machines. So I didn't really need to use this whole Docker container business. I found a fantastic video by an Australian named Emilio Aguero explaining exactly how to configure Virtual Machine Manager on a Synology NAS with Ubuntu Server. Now, I know at this point, I should have followed his instructions, but I already had that ISO for the ARM version of CentOS downloaded, so I used that instead. 
I followed his instructions to upload it from my Mac to the Synology. Now, if you've been paying close attention, you'll understand why that failed. While the ARM version made sense when I was going to install it in VirtualBox on my ARM-based Mac, of course it's not going to work on the Synology because it's x86-based. All right, still wanting to test out CentOS Stream, I downloaded the x86 version. It started to install, but then it asked me a whole bunch of questions. I, I just didn't know the answer to these questions, and so it was time to bail on CentOS Stream and switch to Ubuntu. Maybe there's a reason why so many people like it. Once I went down the Ubuntu path using the Virtual Machine Manager on Synology, it was relatively clean sailing. The one tricky bit that Emilio explained is that you have to start with Ubuntu Server, and once you get that installed, you tell Ubuntu Server to install Ubuntu Desktop. Kind of weird, but it works really well if you just follow his instructions. Once I got Ubuntu Desktop running, I spent a little time figuring out how to set the screen resolution in Linux so I could see what I was doing. Now, technically, everything worked, but for some reason, it thought I had caps lock on when I didn't, and I never did figure out how to fix that particular problem. I also must say, it's really, really slow to run a virtual machine on a Synology. It was usable, but I definitely wouldn't want to use the Synology for any length of time as a host for my virtual machines. Now, what was the point of this whole experiment of installing these virtual machines, other than getting a chance to play with my Synology and learn about new tools? I needed to test my time shifter clock in an environment where I could mess with the time on the local machine. In order to test time shifter clock, I wanted to set the clock back to Saturday, November 6th, the day before the U.S. came off of daylight saving time. On that day, Dublin and Los Angeles should have been seven hours apart. But if I slide the time shifter into Sunday morning in Los Angeles, it should at some point start to show us as eight hours apart once daylight saving time has been abandoned in the U.S. Now, my testing needed to be on the unreleased version of my code, which is in GitHub, which in turn creates a web page for me automatically. I set the clock on the virtual machine to 10 p.m. on November 6th, and then I tried to open the GitHub web page for TimeShifter Clock. Boy, howdy, GitHub did not like that at all. GitHub knew the time on my system, and yet I was asking for something from the future. I thought that was really interesting, and I suspect it had to do with their very tight authentication requirements, for example, using a time-based authentication code to log in. I figured out that if I went to the GitHub web page first with the time set correctly on the virtual machine and logged in and, and got my web page up, I could then change the time and the web page would continue to function. Now for the big test. The daylight saving time change happens either at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., depending on how you look at it. I moved the time shifter forward until it said 1 a.m. in Los Angeles, and I confirmed that Dublin was still seven hours ahead, showing 8 a.m. I nudged it forward a half hour, and I saw 1.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. When I nudged it forward a half hour more, Dublin moved to 9 a.m., but Los Angeles jumped back to 1 a.m. again, finally moving us to eight hours apart. You can imagine my squeal of glee when I was finally able to verify that my web app was functioning perfectly now. I put three screenshots in the show notes showing the, you the progression so you can see what I'm talking about here, but I also made a little video showing the success of shifting time over a daylight saving time change in one country with respect to another. I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Programming makes me feel like I have made fire. Now, I bet some of you out there have realized that I could have made a virtual machine in a much easier way. Just five months ago, I told the story of how I used the free UTM virtual machine software to install Ubuntu on my M1 Mac Mini. 
I totally forgot that I had already solved this exact same problem. I was searching for a fix for that pesky caps lock program in my VM on the Synology when I studied, I stumbled across the instructions of how to install Ubuntu on UTM, and it was the same instructions I had followed back in June, but they were on my other M1. They were on the M1 Mac Mini, not my, not my M1 MacBook Pro. For completion's sake, I had to install it again on my M1 MacBook Pro, and it worked perfectly, and it was a lot faster than running on the Synology. If I gotta tell you guys, if I remember just half of what I'd done over the years, I would be brilliant. Oh well, I had fun learning about Virtual Machine Manager on Synology, and I had fun experimenting with the different versions of Linux. In any case, I made fire, and Time Shifter Clock is better than ever. I'll be pushing the release of this new feature soon. I walk my dog Tesla every single day. Yes, my dog and my car have the same name, but she actually came first. During daylight saving time, I usually head out sometime between 4 and 5 p.m. In California, that means broad daylight and warm, dry weather most of the time. But when daylight saving time ends, a walk anytime after 4 p.m. means a walk at dusk. In 2018, I told you about how I almost got hit by cars three times in a span of two weeks while walking Tesla at dusk or in the early evening. Now, once might be the driver's fault, but three times suggested that the drivers simply could not see me. On the third attempt to take my life, I was wearing a long sleeve, bright orange shirt, but evidently that was not enough to make me visible. My solution in 2018 was to buy the taglit LED magnetic blinkers from Night Eyes and sprinkle them all over my clothes. I also bought an LED ring to put around Tesla's neck and even a pendant LED light to attach to her collar. The change was immediate, as more than one person actually opened their car window to tell me, hey, I saw you because of those lights. This solution worked pretty well, but the taglets don't have a strong enough magnet to hold reliably when attached to a sweatshirt as the weather got colder. They, they're just not that strong. They kept falling off and getting lost. I'd retrace my steps and sometimes find them, but I often found myself having to buy replacements. If you walk alone at night, I still think they're a good solution, and hopefully you can find better clothes to which you can attach them. The LED light ring for Tesla wasn't actually bright enough, and it only allowed increased visibility if it was actually fully dark. It added no additional protection during dusk, which I think is the most dangerous time of the day. Her pendant wasn't very bright either, and the casing got dinged up and was dingy looking, and the non-replaceable battery eventually died. The other problem was that it took a bit of extra time to hook up all these devices and get them turned on. I would have to make a decision each day on whether it was really all that dark and did I really need to put them on. If I was hesitating at all, you know this was a flawed solution. This year I came up with a new solution that is easier to use and even more effective. I turned again to the wonderful folks at Night Eyes to see if maybe they had an LED leash, and indeed they do. They call it the Night Eyes Night Dog 5-Foot Leash and it sells for $26 on Amazon. There is everything to love about this leash and virtually no downsides. I bought it in the color they call Lime, which is super bright and reflective even without turning it on. They also sell it in a light blue, but I think that might miss the purpose of this leash. The leash is USB rechargeable, which is awesome. It has three modes, off, solid on, and blinking on. The handle is nicely padded, so it's very comfortable to use. I prefer a shorter leash, so with the Night Dog, I do have to give it an extra wrap, but the, the handle is actually kind of stiff, and it wraps really nicely into a, into a double kind of a handle. The handle isn't too thick, so it isn't a huge problem. Even though it's padded, it's just still not that thick. 
One of the main advantages of the Night Dog over the Taglet system and other accessories is that it's so easy to grab the evening leash versus the daytime leash. There's no longer any hesitation because it is literally no extra work. This means it makes me safer because I'm sure to use it at the right time. I could go one step easier and use that leash all the time, but I walk so much I don't want to unnecessarily dirty the leash during daytime walks. I've taken Tessa out with this leash often since the time change, and I have to say it is a huge enhancement to the visibility of us to drivers. Night Eyes doesn't market this leash as being reflective, but like I said, it sure does seem to reflect even without the the light turned on. There's an easy to push button on the controller right near the handle, and this thing is really bright when you turn it on. Another reason this is more effective than my previous combination of lights is that the leash swings when you walk. A light is one thing, but a moving light is unmissable, and this is a long moving light. With this single device, I don't think I need to light me up or add any lights to Tesla, and yet I believe we are much more visible than we were before. I put a photo and a video of Tesla in the show notes to demonstrate just how bright the night dog is. Note that in the, in the photo and the video, it's only 5.17 p.m., which was just 30 minutes after sundown, so it's not even truly dark yet. The brightness of the leash demonstrates how much safer I feel. My neighbor Rick just got a new dog, and he's been religious about walking her for the past few months. And I love to encourage people to exercise, so I bought a set and second night dog for them. It's given me great joy to see the two of them out walking with this crazy beacon of light keeping them safe. If you've got a dog to walk and you've been finding excuses not to walk in the evening when it gets dark, or you've got a neighbor or friend or family member you'd like to keep safer, I highly recommend the Night Eyes Night Dog Rechargeable LED Leash. 26 bucks is worth saving a life or two. We often visit our daughter Lindsay and her family. Because we go there really often, I like to make sure our electronic life is as smooth as it is at home. Lindsay is an accomplished geek in her own right, so she enjoys the improvements as much as we do. Lindsay's first house was very small, and I outfitted it with a two-unit Netgear Orbi mesh system. For this little house, it was overkill, but it worked perfectly. But then she moved into her new house, and the two-unit Orbi system was not up to the job. Her new house is a very long L-shape with multiple levels, including a basement. The cable connection comes into her home in the den, which is, of course, at one end of the house. Even with the second Orbi at the corner of the L, the signal didn't reach to their bedroom at the opposite end of the house. The distance from the den to the L corner was just too great. I upgraded her house to the second generation Eero Pro, which was the bee's knees at the time. This is the version that has three full-size router units with tri-band radios, and that means it has a dedicated 5 gigahertz backhaul. That allows your devices to connect at 5 or, or 2.4 gigahertz, and then the traffic between the routers can also travel at 5 gigahertz speed on that backhaul. Now, there are more advanced versions of the Eero now, even one supporting Wi-Fi 6, but the one she has is a terrific system. With the unit placed not quite to the L corner and another one in their bedroom, the gateway router in the den was able to flood that giant house with Wi-Fi. Now, all was well for a long time, but recently things started to degrade. The degradation was intermittent, with the Wi-Fi working perfectly fine unless we were visiting, and the slowdown was really noticeable. Lindsay called her internet service provider, Comcast, and they asked her how many devices she normally had on her network. And she responded, I don't know, around 25? To which the genius on the phone said, oh, you can't have more than 10. <laughs> like, what, is this 1992? What are you talking about? 
When we're at a house, there's a smidge more than 10 devices sharing Wi-Fi. The last time we came to visit Lindsay, she was still at work when we arrived, and she sent me a text saying she always knows when we've arrived at her house because her notifications from Eero go bananas, repeatedly saying, a new device has joined the Tandy Ranch. She sent us a screenshot, and I put it in the show notes. It's pretty hilarious. When all of us are at her house, simply surfing the web became painfully slow. I'm talking like five seconds to load a web page. For some reason, streaming video on the Apple TV continues to work just fine. I'm thinking it effectively buffers the data so intermittent connectivity isn't a problem. It got so bad on our last recent, or our recent visit that uh, we were starting to use our phones to tether to be able to do anything at all. It's time for me to diagnose the real root cause. My good friend Pat is a certified Apple consultant, and she installs a lot of Eros for her clients, so she's my go-to when it's time to noodle an Eero question. I pinged her and I described the situation and she gave the classic instructions to turn it off and turn it back on again. I pulled power from the gateway unit that was attached to the modem. Probably should have unplugged them all and given them a group timeout, but I only pulled power from that main unit, the one that's connected to the, uh, to the modem. This did not fix the problem. Next, Pat and I discussed things like emptying caches on devices, but since it was affecting every single device, from iPhones to iPads to Macs, I didn't pursue that path. She also suggested I check to make sure that the Eero uh, software was up to date, and it was. I was starting to wonder whether we actually did have too many devices for the Eero system. A quick search of the Eero support website found this in the Frequently Asked Questions section. It said, how many devices can one Eero support? One Eero can support up to 128 devices. You read that right. That's one very connected home. However, if those devices are heavily using the internet for activities like streaming video, you'll probably see best results using up to 30 devices with each Eero. Even with Lindsay's ring door doorbell and floodlight cams outside the house, her wise cams and baby monitor, monitor cam inside the house, her four Apple TVs, her connected oven, her sense solar monitoring system, and all of our computers and mobile devices, we weren't anywhere near 128 devices all on one of the three Eros, and we were only streaming on one device at a time. So it wasn't the number of devices. But somehow, our arrival with all those extra devices really seemed to be affecting the performance of the network. Pat had me check to make sure that I didn't have both the modem and the Eero router handing out IP addresses. If you do that, you can end up in a condition called double NAT or double network address translation. The modem in this case is a Netgear 3500, which is about as dumb as you could hope. I don't even think it has a router in it because there are literally no controls for assigning IPs in the uh, web interface, even under the advanced tab. That ruled out the double NAT problem. Pat also suggested that I check DNS because <laughs> it always seems to be a DNS problem. DNS stands for Domain Name System, and this is a system that does a lot of things, but one of them is translating the names of websites into the external IP addresses for those servers. That's a simplification, but if you're not using a well-managed DNS server to make those translations, things can get slow. You may be using DNS servers from your internet service provider, and those are rarely well-managed. You can choose a different DNS, and our recommendation is to use Cloudflare, or if not Cloudflare, maybe uh, Google's DNS. I double-checked, and I had already set Lindsay's Eero to use Cloudflare's DNS 1.1.1.1 and the backup one of 1.0.0.1. So. That was not the problem. For once, DNS was not at uh, fault. It was a great suggestion for me to check that, though. 
Pat then suggested I contact support. That's really good advice. The last time I had a networking problem, she suggested I contact Eero support, and they were as good as she said. The rep stayed on the phone with me for a very long time while we diagnosed and then fixed the problem I had. In this case, I wasn't quite ready yet to pull the support parachute on this problem. I went back to the idea of unplugging the main gateway Eero, and I finally noticed something curious. The power supply connects to the Eero via USB-C. The insulation on the cable, right where it connected to the strain relief of that USB-C connector, was cracked and broken. I couldn't tell whether the wires inside were actually broken, but it seemed like it wasn't a good idea to keep it this way. Unfortunately, the other end of the cable was hardwired into the power supply, so to fix that problem, I would need both a replacement charger that would provide 24 watts of power or more, and a new USB-C cable for it. Now, I travel with a gallium nitride 65-watt charger with a very long USB-C cable, and I use that to charge my Mac, my iPad Pro, and to recharge my travel battery while I'm there. I swapped out the frayed cable and charger on the Eero with my gallium nitride charger and the new USB-C cable, and then I waited while everyone jumped on their devices. The network immediately started performing perfectly. We played with our phones, our Macs, there were even a couple of PCs online. Forbes played games on his iPad, and we had no slowdowns, even with streaming on the Apple TV. Since the 65-watt charger was overkill, and since I actually need to use that gallium nitride charger, I went on a hunt for a more suitable replacement. Lindsay and I found a Samsung 25-watt charger for $16 at Best Buy, along with a 6-foot insignia-braided USB-C cable for another $9, and most importantly, they were both in stock and available for pickup same day. I swapped in the Samsung charger and the insignia cable, and the Wi-Fi connection continued to work flawlessly. Now, the question is, why did the frayed cable cause intermittent networking problems only when the number of devices went way up? We noodled this and thought, perhaps the gateway router connected to the modem was limping along with a compromised signal, but the 5 gigahertz backhaul was working well enough to push us to one of the other routers in the house. We were all in the den together when this poor performance occurred, which could be accounted for by being connected to a faraway router. In my opinion, the more likely possibility is it wasn't the frayed cable at all. But that second reset of the router system that lasted quite a bit longer actually cleared out whatever had gotten the the Eero's panties in a bunch. A $24 replacement power supply and cable was still a good investment, because even if this wasn't the root cause, it would eventually be the root cause of some problems. Let's take a quick pause to celebrate two more longtime supporters of the NoSilicast. Richard Appiah and Jonathan Scott have both been supporting the show for years, for four long years. Think about that. For four years, their contributions have helped to keep the servers humming, the backups running, the microphones clear, and the blogging and podcast feed software up to date. Without contributors like Richard and Jonathan, the podcast would be a very expensive hobby. If you've got a few shekels or rupees or lira or won or yen to spare, please consider becoming a patron of the Podfeet podcast by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Thank you again, Richard and Jonathan, for your long-term support. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? I am doing just fine. Um, I, I don't like this winter thing. Can it go away now or is it only just getting started? <laughs> uh, 
I just to be a complete jerk, I sent a photo to uh, Bart and to Stephen Getz in Canada of my granddaughter in basically a bathing suit in a swing, swinging out over this gorgeous pool with a, with palm trees in the background. It was 81 degrees Fahrenheit on the uh, day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. With wind chill, it, it had a feels like of minus one for me in Celsius. Ah, so, no, I think no that's t-shirts. about what it I think that's about what it was for Stephen Getz. I told him I was a jerk. He goes, nah, I'd have done the same thing if the tables had been turned. I would have been. If the tables were turned, it's like, oh my God, climate change has really broken the place. <laughs> it's <laughs> Ireland and there's a pool. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get stuck into some security bits. You said, uh, uh, tell the audience what you just told me about the uh, new, latest stories on security on all your feeds. Well, I hit, I always like to do a last minute check in case something spectacular has happened while I was cycling. and. I hit refresh and there were 32 new stories. There ah. were six of them that were not about deals for Cyber Monday. <laughs> and it has gotten a little out of control, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of them were the Brussels Times telling me Belgium's gone to hell on a handcart, just like Ireland. So, yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Well, my parents are over there for the winter. So they're, they're I think oh. we're, we're, we're one of the worst countries in Europe and Belgium's also in the top five. So I guess at least we're even. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, let us let us put all that bad news aside and have a look at this secure. Mm. Mm, this plan may not work, Alison. But anyway, let's let's talk security. It's something different. Different. Yes. Um, so lots and lots of follow up on things we've been following for a while. So the first is a quick update on the NSO group. Apple are suing them. Uh, they would oh, like them to be, yeah, they'd like them to be enjoined from attacking iOS, and they're looking for unspecified damages because it takes a lot of effort by Apple to fix all the stuff they break. So we shall see. What does how it mean to be en- enjoyed, enjoined from breaking iOS? It means that it would be an American court would ban them from doing it. They would obviously not pay attention to the American court. And then the question would be if that American court could actually impose any sanctions. They're already on the block list from the The United uh, States. The United States. So to some extent, this may be a symbolic um, attack. Very unusually, Apple also let one of their senior lawyers talk publicly and without his politically correct hat on. He actually oh. said that they were sending a message to people who mess with iOS users. It's like something out of a gangster movie. <laughs> yeah, really? Your mother's going to sleep with the fishes or something? Yeah, I mean, it was like, wow, wow that's, that's, that, that, Apple must be really cranky if, they, if, if this is what Apple people think is an appropriate response. So, yeah, it's just interesting. Well, um, so NSO group, Apple, the, the NSO group being, being on the no-fly list, if you will, from the United States doesn't mean that they can't sell to companies outside of the United States that do nefarious things to state-owned actors and that sort of thing, right? Right. But it does certainly pile on more pressure. And the historically, the um, Israeli government have had their back. And when asked mm. for comment, an Israeli government spokesman said something along the lines of, well, this is an American court, so nothing to do with us. Mm. And they, did, they didn't, like, they didn't, they pretty much just threw them under the bus. They were like, no, not a state entity, not our problem. Who are they throwing under the bus? The NSO group? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. And uh, actually, the, the best write-up, I've seen a few write-up, but the one that I've linked in the show notes is Glenn Fleischman, who has a lot of context. Uh, there's also a big Google case that's been allowed to proceed against the NSO group that had been on hold for a while. 
Um, and ironically, one of the reasons the NSO group is in trouble is because of stuff they're doing for Saudi Arabia, and the Israeli government actually made them do that, and now the Israeli government are throwing them under the bus, which is a bit mean. Um, hmm. It's like, you're getting caught for doing what we told you to do, and now we're washing our hands of you. So, like, well, hang on. <laughs> but, uh, oh no, smallest violin, I'll, I'll play a very small note. But, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm having trouble working up my sympathy for NSO group. Yeah, I'm not getting very far either. Um, Apple's digital IDs. Uh, the first, the biggest news is that the rollout has been delayed from late 2021 to early 2022, which is... This was a driver's licenses? Yeah, I, I think it's driver's licenses and ID, right? Not all okay. IDs are driver's licenses. Although Correct. I guess in America, that's a distinction without a difference for a lot of people. Yeah, it, it, it do does happen. There is such a thing, but uh, I don't think it's super common. But I mean, yeah. if you had some sort of disability that you couldn't drive, you would still need an ID, right? Right. Yes. Yes. We have My two. We have our ID and our license. Oh, okay. Two documents. My sister-in-law has, has epilepsy and I know she can't drive, but she would still need an ID for everything. So I would think that would be... Yeah. If nothing yeah. else, how else are you going to get your gin? <laughs> Very important. Anyway, um, the other news is some of the details of the contracts that Apple are getting the states to sign have been released by CNBC. And a lot of the reporting has clickbait splattered all over it. Um, but if you can read between the obvious bias, there's actually some interesting data points in there too. So it lays out the different responsibilities for the different parties. And a lot of it is sort of what you would expect. So Apple get control of the devices and they decide which devices will and won't have the feature and when they will roll out the updates to the devices, which seems reasonable. Uh, the states have to run the back end and they have to do the bit that actually says that, yeah, this person is this person. And that's okay. been reported like Apple are somehow being lazy. It's like, no. That's you don't want really Apple asserting your identity. Right, that's exactly what you don't want. Exactly. The people asserting your identity are the people issuing the IDs, for goodness sake. How on earth could that be anyone but the States? That just bamboozled me. That was being spun as Apple, a multi-billion dollar company making the government do work. I'm like, what? Stop. Okay, data point interesting. Stop being so silly. Um, the bit where they kind of have a point is that Apple managed to get written into the contract that the States must publicize the new service. So the states have to pay for the ads, or, well, the ads is probably the wrong word, the publicity campaign, I'm assuming it's an awareness campaign or whatever. Uh, but Apple get to okay all of the marketing materials. Uh, of course they do. That's a very I Apple mean, thing to sneak into the contract. So that one I will say, okay, yeah, you, you can have a bit of a dig at Apple about that, but the rest of it is the way it should be. <laughs> you can just see that there's going to be BS, like how close you're allowed to put something next to the Apple logo. And, you know, the Apple logo can't be on top of or under the flag for the state or, you know, you just picture yeah. all kinds of goofy stuff like that, that they would care deeply about. Well, if Maynooth University have rules about the amount of pixels around the edge of our logo, <laughs> which we do, uh, which I used to know, but I, I know where to find them. Um, I don't know them off by heart anymore, but I know where to find them. Um, yeah, Apple must. You're absolutely right. They must have all these rules. So it's interesting. That, anyway, that, that was uh, reading between the, the anti-Apple spin. There was some interesting data in there. So I, I had fun with that. Yeah, everywhere I saw it, it was like this was this was an outrage. 
And I, I never heard them say anything that I heard outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah, I mean, the closest to outrageous is the fact that they managed to say, and you must advertise it and we get to say what's okay, which, which is yeah. cheeky, but not scandalous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, iOS 15's mail privacy protection feature. Um, it is an iOS 15 feature. And if you have an Apple Watch and you have that Apple Watch reading your email, it is not protected by the mail privacy protection feature on your iPhone. So some security researchers basically noticed that the Apple Watch is independent enough to do its own networking, and it mm. doesn't have the, 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 it doesn't route the traffic through the private relay. So if you view an image in an email from your iPhone, your IP address is not hidden because your phone didn't fetch the image, Apple servers fetched the image and then handed it back to you. But if you view the same email on your watch, your watch will just go fetch the image. Oh, interesting. But as long as you don't open an image on the watch, then you'd well, be Well, okay. but if you read the mail, it's going to get the and image. it has an image. Oh, right, right, right. And a oh. lot of those images are one pixel tracking pixels, right? That's yeah. their job in life is to be hidden, but there, which is... You know, I still easy. haven't turned this on. Have you found any ill effects to turning it on? I turned it on the moment it came out. It, the old, I have one small gripe. So whenever privacy, the, if if you end up on some corporate Wi-Fi networks, um, private relay is not available. Doesn't work. Whatever ports are blocked or something. And so you okay. get a banner that says private relay off. And then when you leave the area, you get another banner saying private relay on. And you know the way with iOS 13 or 14, Apple gave us the ability to control which apps do and don't get banners. And so you, you long press on the right. banner and then you change your preferences. You cannot oh, set preferences in these banners. Okay. I didn't, uh, I don't think I've ever done that, that keystroke that you're talking about where you press and hold. Yeah. So on the notification screen, if you press and hold, you get all sorts of options like deliver silently, uh, don't allow this to deliver anymore. So basically you can, you can really put manners in your notifications, stop them distracting you. And so okay. I'm very religious about curating my notifications and I can't curate these. If you enable hmm. private relay, Apple will badger you. Well, that seems a little <laughs> invasive for a privacy protecting feature, but I'm guessing it's some sort of teething problem. So private relay is the same as male privacy protection? The same is such an interesting term. They are I mean, all is that how deeply you interconnected. It? They are all deeply oh. interconnected. Oh, this is like saying is handoff continuity. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And yes, one of the and? things. Yeah, one of the things that's actually changing in the betas at the moment is Apple's wording of these features. They're tweaking around all the labels at the moment, probably okay. because everyone's getting confused. So okay. it's hard to tell what they're going to call it when it actually goes out of beta. So we shall see. Oh, that, that's beta. So I have three choices. I can protect mail. Well, down below, it's got hide IP address and block all remote content. So block uh, all remote is the old way, right? That's the old sledgehammer. Your mail client doesn't open anything that isn't in the email. Okay, so those are, those are checkboxes I can do independent of protect mail activity. So there's hide IP address and block all remote content. By default, or maybe I check this, hide IP address is, is selected. I can also select block all remote content. Or I can click protect mail activity, which hides IP address and doesn't, doesn't check the block all remote content. It's sort of like there's two ways to do the same thing. That's very strange. Yeah. Odd I, UI. 
It's odd UI and I'm, I was already a little bit confused. Now I'm even more confused. <laughs> so you're talking about the banner that comes up and says, hey, there's some content, but I blocked it, but you can't really see it. But well, maybe no, if you it, click here, I'll show it to you anyway. No, if you turn on private relay, you get a, a notification that pops down that says, oh, I've had to turn it off because something's happened. And then, oh, okay. I've had, I've, I'm back on again. Oh, this is only an iOS, you said. Correct. Correct. I'm sitting here playing with it on my Mac the whole time you're describing it, so not doing... <laughs> well, okay, but there is also, sorry, there is also parts of Private Relay on the Mac, right? Okay. Just not on the watch. It's Right, it, that it, was the point. This whole thing is still in flux. Okay. And it's very wishy-washy at the moment. Okay. So I, I, I will not nail anything to a mast. I might use a thumbtack. <laughs> I think okay. I understand what's going on, but I won't. Well, I've, turned, I've turned it on for fun. Let's see what damage I just did. Yeah, you should be fine. So far, it hasn't done me any harm apart from mildly annoying me with those notifications from time to time that I can't control. Okay. I just want to make okay. the notifications go away. Um, another interesting development that's Apple related. Apple are all over this section, by the way. But anyway, another interesting Apple one. Um, so you know the way we have this whole app trapping transparency thing where the users get asked, is it okay to be tracked? And the user gets to say no. And that's, that is the the stick. Right. But there is a That's carrot that Apple offered at the same time called private private <laughs> click measurement. Okay. And this is an anonymized way of telling advertisers how many clicks each of their ads got. So it lets you test the effectiveness of your ad buy without you being able to track people effectiveness as far as somebody at least clicked it. They're not going to tell you whether it resolved into a purchase or anything because they don't know what happens after it leaves. Uh, no, I'm pretty sure you can even do a bunch of that. Uh, I need really? to double check the details, but basically the idea is that the analytics that the people using ads need, that is the excuse for privacy invasion, Apple have a good alternative for that, which sort of puts a lie to the whole, oh, no, no, this is just about tracking the effectiveness of ads. No, which isn't. But anyway, so in order to make the, the Apple start, in order to not be the bad guy, Apple provided this way to continue to support ads without invading privacy, which is cool. And I presume all of the uh, people who buy ads think it's wonderful and aren't complaining. <laughs> That's, that would be overselling their enthusiasm. <laughs> None of them are saying it's bad. Is this for in-app ads? Ah, okay. So now you're getting to the bit that's news. So when Apple released it, it was web ads. What is new now is that it is in-app ads too. What would a, how would they control a web ad? Well, it's all about the tracking identifiers that are available. So if okay. you can't do tracking because the cookies and stuff aren't available then what Apple do is offer an API through Safari that the developers can use to do this tracking. Oh, I see. I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Huh. And now it's available to in-app ads. Okay. That's, so that's probably a little news. more useful to them. Yeah, it is actually. Um, because like people who buy ads on websites are people, and that is a thing. I mean, that is not a zero thing. That is quite a big thing, I think you may have noticed on the internet. Uh, but ads and apps are also a thing. And so yeah. the, this is this is important. So it is this is actually very good. And it it makes app tracking transparency more viable for Apple to offer abilities to do the thing you have to do, which is figure out whether or not the ad you paid for works. Right? If I'm buying ads, 
I really do need to know if, if, if I was wasting my money. I always think back, and I know I've brought it up several hundred times, but how before this model, you didn't know whether your ads were working. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget listening to Canex uh, uh, AM, which is a business radio station, talks all business, and, in the, and it's in Los Angeles. And in the middle of it, there was an ad for Caterpillar Tractors. Now, it I don't seems think seems unlikely, a, yeah, unless they're looking for shareholders. Need tractors in Los Angeles, but it's not like, you know, you're you're not talking to uh, Ohio or or you, you know, a place that is traditionally going to have a lot of uh, <laughs> tractor traffic. So, how did they know whether that ad was effective? Well, okay, so the way you would have done it in the old analog days was that you would have coupon codes. That's why the coupon was invented to let you track ads. Okay. So, okay. You, you would know, you would have different coupon codes, say, for the New York Times and the, the LA Times, and then you would know based on right. your coupons which worked and which didn't. Right. And the same with, you know, redeem this code or whatever, right? The, those are all the mechanisms to hack around the issue in the physical world. Right, right. Anyway. Uh, back, on, back on app tracking transparency, it is interesting to me watching Apple's own stuff have those blocks as well. I, I hadn't used Apple News on some device, and when I mm. went into it, it said, uh, hey, um... Can you do you want to ask the app not to track or or can they track you and provide you more relevant ads? And I was like, no, you can't track me either. It was just kind of cool to see it with an Apple. It is good that they ask too. It's something that they when they they brought out their their privacy nutrition labels, they got pretty badly dinged for their own apps not having the labels because of course their own apps aren't in the app store because they're on the phone. Right, 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 right. And so they 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 have the labels, but they're on their website, which is you know it's a good compromise. But they they, they do kind of have to eat their own dog food, or they get into all sorts of trouble. Um, Senator Klobuchar will mercilessly shout at them if they don't do that. <laughs> mercilessly, yes, she will. Um, yeah. So that's okay. So that's all the Apple stuff. That was that was quite a bit of it. Uh, social media updates. Then I I've made this a big section, expecting lots of content, and I've just realised I pasted one whole link in there. Uh, anyway. WhatsApp are going to begin warning people when they receive messages from businesses as opposed to individuals, specifically businesses Hmm. not in their address book. So basically, this is someone trying to sell you something. Really? Yeah. They're they're rolling it out in beta at the moment for people in their test flight program. So if it goes well, I'm assuming we all get to play. How How would a business just suddenly start texting you in WhatsApp? I don't know. Hasn't happened to me yet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure it's just a matter of time. WhatsApp uses your phone number, so I guess if the business gets their hands on your phone number, yeah, that's probably not that hard. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Oh, that doesn't bear thinking about. Okay, on to oh, oh dear. Action alerts. So someone who is on this conversation, who's not me, may have had to take this very specific action themselves. Um. GoDaddy had a wee bit of an issue where they sort of lost everything for their managed WordPress accounts. And that's kind of a big feature, right? You could run your own WordPress and do all of your own work, or GoDaddy could do it all for you. It's sort of like you had one job. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to take it from here since you you, you were ankle, not ankle deep, not elbow deep, you're up to... Neck deep. Neck deep in this one, yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I manage my own uh, server for podfeed.com, but I also manage the uh, Hank's History Hour podcast. And uh, a few years ago, I got tired of dealing with it. It had gotten hacked once or twice, and I had to clean it up, and it was a big fat mess because I, I just don't pay attention to it because it doesn't change very often. So um, Bart said, you know, maybe this is a case of a managed WordPress site where someone else manages it for you, and you don't have to do the updates and pay attention to everything. So I uh, switched it over. It's hosted at GoDaddy. And I know saying you have a GoDaddy site is like saying you use AOL email, but <laughs> they've actually been they've been good. They've been fine. Um, but I got an email uh, about the password breach. Uh, so basically, they control everything. I don't yeah. do any work on the site. The email said, uh, in I've done some partial quotes here. Uh, so they sent it out on November 22nd, five days earlier, on November 17th, an unauthorized third party gained access to certain authentication information for administrative services, specifically the customer number and email address associated with your account. Eh, that's okay. Well, your that's WordPress phishing. Admin- that, is, that, is, right, that is danger, sure, that's phishing. phishing, 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 right? That, that makes you very yeah. vulnerable to phishing. So it's, it's, it's not good, but yeah. it's not okay. good. It but continues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If that was the only thing, I'd probably be incensed. But the next line said, your WordPress admin login set at inception and your SFTP and database usernames and passwords. In other words, everything. They bury the lead on that one because they said, you know, the first, the admin password set out account creation, everyone should have changed that because WordPress should ask you to change it. But, mm-hmm. and is they hide the really, 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 really important one after the word and. Like, that's your SSH access. Yeah. Yeah. Database, usernames and passwords. And the database. So your database and your files. Yeah. So this meant a bunch of work for me, but the good news was they said, we're taking several steps to protect you and your data. First, we have blocked the unauthorized third party from our systems. Good. Good. Second, we have reset your WordPress admin login credentials, your SFTP password, and your database password. Your website is still up and running, but you won't be able to edit content until you set new passwords. And then they had links you could click (laughs) to go reset those passwords. I did not click those links. I opened Good. up a web browser and I typed in G-O-D-A-D-D-Y.com and I went in and I, I followed their steps. Um, while they had one job and they blew it spectacularly, the instructions they gave for resetting these passwords, I mean, when I first looked at it, I was like, I have no idea how to reset my SFTP password, my database. I don't, I don't even know how to do this. this is, but since it was all closed down and they had changed it on me, I figured, okay, I had a day or two to catch my breath and think through how to do this. And I uh, went in and I found the uh, the help articles. They were very, very good. They were very specific. It was super obvious how to do it. Um, on the SFTP password, um, I had I had a problem where I could change it, but the okay save that change button just simply didn't do anything in Safari. Yeah. So I switched over to Firefox and it didn't work there. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to tweet them. They're probably not busy right now. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, their support staff have nothing to be doing. They'll just help me straight away. Yeah. And so I tweeted it. And within a couple hours, they got back to me on Twitter and suggested I try using a private browser window, like incognito mode. And uh, they said, if that doesn't work, DM us your account number and we'll help you out. And so I tried incognito and it worked. Um, I made a point of when I wrote to them the first time and the second time saying, I appreciate you taking the time when what has to be a terrible day for you and getting back to me right away and tell them that it worked. So, you know, they told us quickly, they stopped it, they changed all the passwords, 
and they had good help files. And when something didn't work, they got back to me. So four out of five, just the one is a fairly big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, mean, uh, I know yeah. that doesn't affect everybody. In fact, probably, possibly nobody listening, but I still thought it was, uh, for someone who had lost a lot of data, it was a good way to handle it. Yeah, and a lot of people have managed WordPress sites with GoDaddy. They're a big provider. Okay. This is a very, very significant provider. Like this is, even if you weren't one of the people affected, this would have been up here in action alerts. This is a big deal. I wonder what would have happened though, if if you had a managed WordPress site, is there a good chance you'd go, well, all right, you changed the password. I'm good. And I not mean, do anything. Cause you could do that. They already changed the password. You just yeah. can't get in and do anything. But the whole reason you have a managed WordPress site is you don't want to go in and do anything. Yeah, the only question is, did anyone get in in the in meantime? Between. And you're sort of kind of hoping that... I, I would imagine the attackers would have prioritized sticking their malware on popular sites. So if they were in GoDaddy's back end where they had enough access to get all the passwords, they probably also had the web server logs. And mm-hmm. they also know where to go to inject their malware to get the clicks. Yeah. So the chances are high that the popular, the more, the more popular your website, and if you're the kind of person who's an influencer or whatever, and using their managed WordPress site to make you a fortune, you're using managed WordPress because you're not technical rather than because you don't care. Yeah, right, right, right. Then I think you would need to make darn sure that there's nothing nasty piggybacking off your popularity. Right. Uh, to be fair, I don't know whether anything is injected in there right now. I didn't see anything crapped up, you know? Yeah, I mean, it I was sort of good. thinking through it. How would I react if it was me? And I'd be saying, well, I mean, I'd have everything in Git and I'd, fairly, I'd do a diff on the database backups. And I'm thinking, no, it's a managed WordPress. If I had a managed WordPress, I wouldn't have Git. I wouldn't have database backups. That's the whole bloody point of paying someone else to. So I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, yeah. I'm going with cross my fingers on that. How's that sound? Yeah, yeah. So actually, no. There is that's a slight, slight lie. One of the one of the token things I do on my own WordPresses, including the ones I host myself, is I pay Jetpack to do malware scans. Hmm. Interesting. So I figure because I don't have enough time to be as hands on as I should be, I'll use money to unlock someone else doing the work for me. <laughs> it's not a bad solution. I am poor on time. I have amazing listeners who click the donate buttons on my various podcasts. I will use some of that money so that the website I publish my show notes on doesn't hack my listeners. <laughs> <laughs> seems like Rob, a good investment. Yeah, it probably seems fair to the listeners, right? Yeah, come to my website, you won't get hacked. That seems reasonable. <laughs> anyway, this takes us from action alerts, which are the auga auga, to worthy warnings, which are just ooga, or just ah, I guess, anyway. Um... <laughs> Be aware, but there's very little you can do about it. So be aware (laughs) that there is an unpatched vulnerability in a whole bunch of Intel chips, many, many Intel chips, which means that if someone has physical access to your Intel powered computer with one of these chips, then a so-called evil maid attack, which is a terribly sexist term I have yet to find a replacement for, but that is Mm. unfortunately what they are known as. And now that I think about it, man in the middle is no better. Just assumes that well, and you don't know that a maid is a woman. Actually, maybe this one is less gendered than "man in the middle." Maybe this is actually less bad. Evil maiden attack. (laughs) Fair, fair point. Ooh, that's exposed my prejudice of assuming that a maid must be female. Darn. (laughs) 
pleased on my own petard on that one. You just you just can't win. No, I can't. I'm getting much better about, you know, block list and allow list. And Microsoft are too, actually. I've re- I was reading their documentation on KQL, of all things, and they, I just really noticed well, that they've reworded it all. Anyway, mm. so if you lose physical access to your machine with one of these chips, it is possible for someone who either has a piece of hardware that someone who knows what they're doing has prepared or someone who knows what they're doing would connect physically to one of the ports on the device, bypass full disk encryption by making the secure Enclave equivalent spit out the key it's never supposed to spit out. Oh, that's a pretty big oopsie. Uh, And install any firmware they like because the digital signing that's supposed to protect the firmware can also be bypassed because you can make the security chip spit out every key it has. So you can get all the files and you can booby trap the machine. So if you're the kind of person who travels to, who has valuable information and travels to countries where you don't trust the government, you cannot allow your device out of your sight. If it goes out of your sight, you need to take, you need to be aware of it. Thankfully, most Nacilla castaways do not fall into the category where this level of attacker is going to be dogging them. And goodness. Let's hope so. Yeah. yeah. Intel are working on a patch. And of course, we all patch our firmware. All- oh, wait, no, we don't. Anyway, Intel are working on a patch. So I guess the- no. it's been a long time since I've seen a firmware patch on a Mac. Yeah. Well, now that Apple write their own everything for you, you're, you're in a very different train because you're getting your firmware updates sort of in the, in the wash, right? They're just sort of, in fact, Mac but users we have had, been looking. We used to. We used to get firmware updates from Apple. Uh, you're well, saying we they were probably Intel or Radeon or something? Well, okay, so I think we still do, but some of them require a reboot where the Mac does that scary thing where it reboots twice and beeps at you, and yeah, some of them yeah. just, just happen. Okay. So there's fewer of the ones that scare the ever-loving bejesus out of you. Like, usually I do my security updates first thing on a Monday morning when I'm not entirely awake yet, and suddenly my Mac goes, boom! <laughs> I, think, I think it's bricked, and I think it's dead, and I think I need to buy a new Mac, and then it just boots up. I go, oh. <laughs> Darn You've it. done that again. <laughs> but actually, uh, now that I have a showing, well, I have a, yeah, work bought me a new machine just before the M1 was released, but I still, I've, it's still nice to have a 13-inch MacBook Air that's relatively modern, so I'm not going to complain. Very nice, yeah. Yeah, because I, I spent a long time on a 12-inch MacBook Adorable, and it is still adorable, but God, that thing suffered. It was, it was, <laughs> it was hardly a powerhouse the day it came out, and it certainly wasn't when it was six years old. <laughs> you know, I've, I played with mine the other day, and it was actually, uh, I think I was, I was able to put Mojave on it. Oh, no, it's fully... It's, I mean, it's I'm sorry, not Mojave, I mean uh, Monterey. Yes, absolutely. Mine, I still have mine as a second laptop, because well, you can never have enough screens, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's sitting next to me as a whole separate screen. And it's, it's yeah, it takes, it takes all the patches. It's great. Uh, it's very, it's still lighter than the, the MacBook Airs. <laughs> Having never held, used a MacBook Air, I'm just excited to have gone from 16 to 14. That is, that, actually, that must be a massive difference for you. Yeah. yeah. I've gone heavier, you've gone lighter. Anyway, we were talking about scary stuff from Intel. So that's, that's out there. That, be aware. Great. I hate those kind of stories because I'm always thinking, is this going to make enough media hype that our listeners want to know? Or am I just telling people something they don't care about? Yeah, it it technically violates the uh, rules that we set forth for security bits. But since they might hear about it and there is a patch being worked on. Yeah, if if there had been 
if this had been a week with lots of news, it would have gotten the boot, and it very nearly got the boot anyway, but yeah, I still don't know if I yeah. made the right choice. But anyway, here it is. Uh, moving on then, uh, Pizza, not Pizza Kitchen, California Pizza Kitchen have had a data breach and it affects their employees. And at first glance, I thought, well, everyone who works at California Pizza Kitchen must know about this, so this isn't a problem. But then I noticed there was a really important word in front of the word employee. Former. Ooh. They lost 100,000 records and they have 12,000 employees. <gasps> so that means oh my this goes way back in time. Oh, Wow. So if any wow. of the Nasilicastaways like used to work at California Pizza Kitchen while they were in college or whatever, this could this could actually still affect you that far back. Now it's mostly the kind of stuff that would make you very vulnerable to spear phishing as opposed to the kind of stuff that will immediately cost you money. But it is nonetheless worth being aware that social security numbers were in this dump. And it Oh, may- that's more than phishing. That's an identity theft, isn't it? Because I keep yeah, that, forgetting the SSN is Yeah, open credit used. cards in your number. And yeah. Yeesh. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Okay, Are they so, offering, uh, you know, two years of protection or anything? It is difficult to tell. They are no, they, they were no go, Daddy. The, the, <laughs> the level of transparency is very little. The TechCrunch article basically says, yeah, they're not even telling us whether or not this is former or current employees, but we did the math and they don't have 100,000 current employees. Uh, so, but, and in fact, we found out because they filed with the SEC. Not because they told anyone, because they filed with the SEC. Oh. And this happened months ago. So th- this is really the opposite. So, so these guys do not get glowing review at all. So. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's just such a funny phrase that now we've set GoDaddy as the high bar this week. doing it right. This week. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Brian Krebs has an interesting article on a fraud scam that is becoming quite popular in the United States because it's effective. So there's a service called Zelly, which is this thing Zell. that allows Zelly or something like that. It's a way no, of... just just Zell. Zell, Okay. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard it said. It's, a, it's an American thing. It lets you transfer money between people easily. Yes, and a whole bunch free. of smaller American banks have just got, ooh, that's a nice feature. And they've signed their customers up, but their customers don't actually know they're signed up. Oh. And so the fraudsters basically do a little bit of social engineering. And while they're pretending to talk the victim through blocking a fraudulent transfer, what they're actually doing is talking the victim through sending the scammers money. Oh, wow. With a service they don't know they have. Yeah, Zelle, I don't know that Zelle is super well-known. Yeah, but it, lots um, of banks support it, even though it's not well-known. Yeah, yeah, uh, my my bank does, and uh, and I do have some people who've requested that I, I use it because they get, um, we used to use Venmo, but mm. Venmo ch- charges the money, and so for getting the money, so they've moved over to Zelle because Zelle doesn't charge you anything. <laughs> for now that sounds like a yeah we are not making any money at the moment we need to get some users and then we can somehow monetize them later <laughs> i would this? guess so and then you find another one <laughs> that is true that is a game you can play right you just keep signing up for that's like signing up for the six month no credit on your credit cards and just keep changing your credit card every six months if you have the energy you can avoid interest <laughs> and i have no interest in such things but anyway <laughs> okay so don't don't click links it, this actually, uh, it, this actually goes onto the phone. Oh, so they, they call they, you. 
Yeah, I'm trying to remember. This is the one. Yeah, no, this is the one where it starts off with an SMS message. And that just Mm. says, reply Y or N to approve or disapprove this transfer. And if anyone who answers, right, whether you answer yes or no, it doesn't matter. Anyone who actually answers, that's the in the fraudsters use to go, ah. And then they phone you. And they fake the caller ID, of course. And then, so you're expecting something to happen because you just replied. You didn't do this transfer. And it's for like, it's it's a substantial amount, but not a catastrophic amount. It's like 5,000 or something. Which is enough to get your attention, but not enough to set off your spidey sense of, ah, this is, this is, you know, a Nigerian prince territory. Right? 5,000 is believable, not 500,000. So... And that because you've been primed, because you've just replied to the SMS message, you're way more vulnerable. <laughs> and then off they go. So, yeah. As I say, it's a it's I would a good totally warning. fall for this one. I would totally fall for that. Yeah. Um, a very related note. There's a, the, the, there's a warning from Lake Security that there is currently a glut of very similar phishing-style attacks the attackers rely on fake caller ID and they are pretending to be the Securities and Exchange Commission and they are pretending to be helping you to stop fraudulent Bitcoin transactions. So they're they're actually spearfishing Bitcoin investors hmm. and then pretending to be the SEC, pretending to try save you lots of money. And there's a really good piece of advice in the Naked Security article. If someone phones you and tells and tries to convince you that the proof that they are who they say they are is the caller ID, hang up. That is an absolute red flag. Anyone who says, just look at the caller ID, is a fraudster. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because we know that can be, yeah, obviously. Uh, I finally found a way to explain to people what the caller ID is. Caller ID was invented to allow the people making calls to route your reply to a desired place. So if you phone from a, if you're making a call from a call center, you don't want to route the reply to that particular agent. You want to route the reply to your help desk. So that is why it is possible to set any reply number you want, because it is basically, what should this person do to phone back? It's the equivalent of the reply to address in your email. Oh, which Interesting. is really useful when used appropriately and really dangerous when abused. But we would never believe the reply to address. But we believe the caller ID. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, ever since getting the uh, scam of um, the Apple store supposedly calling you, mm. that's happened a lot. I, my, my sense is immediately that whatever it says is probably not true. Yeah, which is a good sense to have. The other way I've heard it described is give it as much weight as you give the reply to address on the back of a piece of physical mail. Oh, are those fake? I mean, you can write anything on the back of those, right? I suppose. It wouldn't have occurred to me that somebody would do that, but of course that makes sense. Yeah, but 99.9% of caller IDs are correct. 99.9% of the reply to addresses on the back of your mail are correct. But if someone wants to send you spam email, they can put whatever they want on the back of that. Yeah, right, right, right. So it's not any much harder than that, right? It is no harder than that. Oh, yeah, it's... it's, I I used to actually... When I used to teach information processing, it was one of the... One of my lessons was using Telnet to pretend to be a mail server and to send email from (laughs) godatheaven.com. Very, very easy. Good good way to do it, right? Okay. It certainly made the point. The students enjoyed it very much. 
Yeah. Anyway, I was told to stop when the head of department started getting started being the sender of emails that were not appropriate because someone took away all the fun. Anyway. <laughs> That's why we can't have nice things. Huh? Yep, 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 yep. Anyway, notable news. Apple have outlined how it will notify users who have been targeted by sp- state-sponsored spyware attacks. This is very much related to the court case against the NSO group. Apple have said that this doesn't happen to a large percentage of people. In fact, this happens to a very small number of people. But if it does happen, it's really important. So Apple will proactively reach out to you if they believe you are the victim of something like the NSO group. And they will do so in such a way that they will never ask you for any sort of information in the process. So they they are very explicit that they won't ask you for anything. They will only tell. So if you get an email pretending to be Apple. That that we've been targeted. If they discover. So usually the way this works is the NSO group or whatever get away with something for a while. Then someone like Citizens Lab finds it. This then gives the entire security industry signatures to look for they all mm-hmm. go troll through their logs and they all go oh would you look at that someone's been playing naughty and then they go back and they tell the people okay and they can tell who's been naughty at. yeah i mean it, it okay. may be there may be times this is not a case that every single person who is attacked it, it will be possible to know but okay. if apple find out they will tell you okay which is good and they're very, they're very, very careful to point out that if it's really Apple telling you, they will not ask you for your Apple ID. They will not ask you for <laughs> anything. Yeah. Which you have to say. Um, Moscow have thrown another curveball at the US tech industry. And a lot of these stories were headlined, I don't know, Apple told. But no, it was 13 companies, including Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter and TikTok. They have to set up a physical presence in Russia by the end of the year, or they will be in violation of the law. Oh, wonder what they're going to do. I will be watching very carefully what they're going to do, because this is becoming China part two. Yeah. We shall see. Hmm. Now we get to Flick, I think. Oh, well. Okay, these are all good news, followed by point and laugh. Um, So... (laughs) The U.S. Federal Trade Commission has declared that the user-hostile dark pattern colloquially called click-to-subscribe call-to-cancel is illegal. Oh. So if it's easy to subscribe, it needs to be as easy to unsubscribe, and it needs to be possible using the same mechanism you used to subscribe. So if you can do it on the website, you have to be able to undo it on the website. So pay attention, New York Times and all those people who make you, oh, it's really easy to click to sign up, but we won't actually let you click to cancel. You have to phone us. I didn't know that the FTC could actually make laws. Well, they declare it. Basically, what they're doing is they're saying, well, actually, there's a law against unfair practices. And this fits it. We find this to be in breach of that law. So they're basically saying that law over there. Yeah, this applies to this thing you're doing now. Stop it. Oh, I like it. I yeah, like me, it. Too. Is that, me too. Do you know whether that's illegal where you are? Uh, almost certainly because we have very strong um, protections and yeah. I have never seen it happen here. I have never signed up to something that I couldn't unsign up from. I haven't ever seen it either, but I definitely hear tales of woe of it being impossible to get out of something without making 14 phone calls. And then you end up with the, apparently there's a thing called the retention department that they will insist on transferring <laughs> you to. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, that I know that's that's the classic uh, cable company trick. Yeah, even our ISPs have started doing that part. Where they, oh, don't cancel, don't cancel. Like they will do it for you. They they can't say no, and but they will they will not say sir, yes, sir. They will say before you know, <laughs> give me one moment, and they will try to sweet talk you. Uh, but well, it you, is important to know that they exist, though, because that's how you get your rates lowered. That is also true because you you just go, oh, I'm very annoyed, and they go, oh, how about this they, price? <laughs> every time they try to raise my rates, I just engage that and spend some quality time with them and end up i am definitely losing service over time i'm losing things but i've managed to get my rate lower than before i started the conversation so so far i'm winning i think so you bring your crochet or something and you do you know (laughs) yeah knit something nice for forbes or whatever and uh, have a chat (laughs) um also good news also with an american flag next to it um new regulations have been finalized for the banking industry Banks must report major cyber instance incidents within 36 hours. So if Ooh. you're a big financial institution and you get hacked, you have a duty to report. 36 okay. hours. That's but a not if you California Pizza Kitchen. <laughs> and, well, they're not a large financial institution, right? They're a <laughs> nope. You cannot yet buy things in pizza. Well, maybe, but it's not legal tender. You can't pay your taxes in pizza. <laughs> right, right. Funny. Um, anyway, and then we have a cautionary tale, which it made me laugh when I heard it because it made the news here in Ireland because it happened in Northern Ireland. So the Belfast Health Trust gave a filing cabinet to a local charity shop who were very surprised when they opened the filing cabinet to find it was not empty. It contained a stack of files labelled strictly confidential. And it was kind of funny that included the personal contact details for all the senior staff in the charity. Uh, It also contained the risk assessment report on how to better protect patient data. (laughs) It should have just said, don't do this. Don't oh do this. My yeah, so oh my gosh. Files are in paper as well as in your computer. You need to protect them of all kinds. Wow. Yeah, it's, I was like, oh, that's a, that's, that's a, practically a palate cleanser. It's so funny. It kind of is, yeah. And you know, because it was the de- the contact details of the charity's executives, I don't feel nearly as sorry as I could. Yeah. No, and and I'm assuming they didn't. Uh, the the charity didn't do anything with it. No, no, no. They, 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 but it was reported as a data breach to the Data Protection Commissioner. So. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I do have two palate cleansers, and um, I have noticed this week that all of my usual podcasts went silent. I had lots and lots of empty listening time. So I found uh-huh. really interesting things to fill that empty listening time with. Uh, so the first is just a repeat tip. So the EFF last year launched a podcast series called How to Fix the Internet, And what particularly struck me about it was how compatible it is with the Security Bits mindset. The first part of the podcast is telling us how terrible everything is. And the second part of the podcast is what we can do about it. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah. So it is always basically, here's the problem to be solved. And here is a solution the EFF envisage. So this is what we're working towards. And this is how you can help. So it's, oh, nice, nice. Yeah. So it's actually very and positive. You, no, you notes say it's back for a second season? 
Yeah, so the first season, I think it was six episodes, and I really enjoyed it. And at the time, I tipped it here as a palate cleanser because I thought it was really good. And then they went silent. So obviously, they they have some sort of production budget. They make some, they trickle them out, and then they stop. And they reappeared on my podcast feed. And I was like, ooh, nice. that's nice. So they're, they're back. And then completely, I, I literally, I've, that's all I've listened to so far today is this next tip. Because uh, it's a seven-part series. Um, so there's a podcast called Business Wars that tell in a very engaging way the fascinating battles between different businesses and sometimes it's very literal like coke versus pepsi right that's a very traditional this versus that but sometimes they tell much much bigger stories and what they're telling in this seven part series is the story of everything around cryptocurrency so all of those names we've heard on this segment for years now the silk road mount gox all that stuff the detail of how they're all interrelated with each other is absolutely fascinating. And you get the whole story told sort of, I mean, it's narrated. So it's basically they're they're going into the heads of what these people are saying to each other. And they, they do say that they're dramatizations. We don't know that these are the exact words spoken, but it's a real first party telling of the story. So it's very interesting. So anyway, Business Wars, and it's all about crypto. So seven I had actually series. completely forgotten about Mt. Gox and, and Silk Road. That was cryptocurrency? That seems like it was a decade ago. Actually, you're, you're, yeah, it was uh, 2011, 2012. So yeah, pretty much was. Oh, it was. <laughs> and that was cryptocurrency, really? Yeah, I mean, all of this sort of comes around. It all sort of happened at the same time. Mt. Gox sort of was an accident where a guy was just like, well, I'd like to turn these Bitcoin into real money. And so we stayed up all night and hacked together the code. And he was like, I can't find the domain name. And his wife was like, you tried this dumb thing with Magic the Gathering a few years ago. Do you still own that web domain? He was like, yeah, use that. So that's why and it's that called Mount Gox. Back. Yeah, that, that's not, that's the name he just had lying around. So, okay, I'll reuse that. This might or might not work out. You know, maybe the, no, I think his wife was like, you know, is, is, is this a hobby or an income? And he was like, yeah, it might be a small side gig. <laughs> And then he lost a few hundred million dollars, you know, whoopsie daisy. Um, So that's uh, the whole thing is fascinating. I already knew the Silk Road was full of slime balls. Uh, The Winklevoss twins make a nice appearance. Um, (laughs) Speaking of slime balls. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Uh, Very engagingly told. And if you like this one, go back to their archive. Boeing versus Airbus, I loved because I'm big into aviation and stuff. It's just full of cool things. Um, Some of the ones I don't care about, like Mattel versus whoever the hell does the competition to Barbie. I didn't, that wasn't as interesting, but there's loads of them. Gucci, I think. Anyway. versus Yeah, that does sound fun. What I like about both of these is a lot of people will be driving long vacation, long drives for vacations for the holidays. And this is a great stuff to put on and and, uh, keep your mind off how boring the drive is. (laughs) Definitely. This could save your life because you'll, you'll be paying attention to the road because you won't be dozing off. Yes. Yes. Life-saving is what these tips are. Anyway, there's the, there's your palate. Entertained, if not quite cleansed. <laughs> well, I think you, you slid into palate cleansing there at the end. I, I, I like it. That was, that was good. All right. Well, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks, I guess. Indeed we shall. And until then, remember, folks, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Remember, I do need some reviews. And how can you get those to me? You can email me at allison at podfeet.com. You can send in questions or suggestions, anything you like, but I would love some reviews. That'd be great too.
Not on Facebook anymore, so Twitter's the best place to follow me online, at Podfeet. Better yet, you should join our Slack community. A lot of great people have been coming in. It's been fantastic to see this flood of people. You can do that by going to podfeet.com slash slack. And in there, you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocella castaways. Bart is even known to, to come in from time to time. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.